Amen. Well, if you've been tracking with us the last couple weeks, we are now week three in our series on worship, uh, this gather series where we are trying to define what it is that we do here on Sundays when we gather. What does it mean to gather in worship? Well, the first week, as Matt has already um, recapped, we learned that worship is about God. And if that's the case, then he is, in fact, the spectator, and we are the actors. That is, he is worship's sole critic, that we come here today to be incorporated into his story, week two, uh, and not to incorporate him into ours. And in that same week, last week, we, we looked at the story of the gospel shaping the content and structure of our worship services, that is, what we do here on Sundays reflects the gospel pattern in the heart of the believer. If you missed it, it moves from a place of adoration. The first thing we do when we come in is we behold God's glory and we adore him. And secondly, we confess our sins in light of him. We see ourselves more clearly in light of him. And then we are assured that in Christ all our sins are forgiven. And the process then goes through thanksgiving and petition, instruction, charge, and blessing. And so we saw that that story is what we come here to retell. But today what we want to look at is the idea that that story is not one that all happened in the past. That story continues to unfold in your life and in mine. When we say we retell God's story, we don't just mean Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that there is, uh, that he was raised from the dead, that one day I received Christ into my life and became a Christian. Those are all things that we do here when we come, but there's more to it than that. There's more happening than just a remembrance. And so, when we come to tell the gospel story, um, Jesus himself has given us an institution and two unique elements of our worship that are meant to remind us of that ongoing present action of his spirit, and that's the sacrament we've come to celebrate today. Uh, communion is one of the sacraments, and baptism is the other, and we'll look at each of those in turn. Uh, a helpful illustration um, of the place that we find ourselves in when we come to retell this story is related to World War II. If you were to be asked, what, when did the war end? Many would say, well, it was D-Day, the decisive turn in the battle, when actually uh, victory was secured. And we, we knew at that point that in fact, the Allied forces were going to be victorious. And so we look at D-Day as one of those days where decisive victory was purchased and won. However, it was not the end of the war. There were still battles to be fought. There was still uh, needs to be supplied. And it wasn't until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, uh, which was about a year later, that the troops came home, families celebrated their being reunited, And it's not unlike the gospel story we've come to tell. It's Christ, our D-Day was when Christ was on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you have confessed Christ as your Savior, he has, in fact, secured that victory for you. And yet, there are still battles to be fought. There's still life to live here. 
And in that time, he has given us provisions. He's given us food rations, if you will. He's taught us to crave and be satisfied in him in the meantime until that glorious day when, like Victory in Europe Day, when the troops came home, we will celebrate our being reunited with our, with our family in Christ and with Christ himself. So he's given us food for the journey, and he's also marked us as his covenant people, and that, in a nutshell, is the sacrament of communion and baptism. The title of the message today may prompt a couple questions, and so I want to kind of get those out of the way and, and sort of address that first so it's not a distraction from here forward. But the two questions that it seems to beg are, what are God's promises and how are they renewed to us? Gathering renews God's promise. Well, God's promise is this, I will be their God they will be my people. In a nutshell, the truth of the gospel is God chose to fellowship with us. And he did that and accomplished that purpose in Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, and took on the burden of our sin and paid the penalty on the cross and purchased there our forgiveness of sin and assurance of our everlasting life with him. But while victory has been assured in him, we continue forward and we need his promise to be renewed to us, to our minds, to our souls, reapplied to us. We come here needing and craving yet again his forgiveness, his grace in our lives. And for that, he's given us the sacrament as a sign that he is present with us, that he is abiding here and continuing to work in us through his gospel story. So we're going to look at both sacraments, but I want to spend the bulk of our time today looking at the Lord's Supper, uh, which is communion. And my hope in doing that is that we would then be able to take some categories that we established there and sort of transfer some of those principles to baptism and see what's kind of going on in both of those, both of those places. And first, we should define the word sacrament. Uh, this word comes from the Latin term sacramentum. It means a sacred promise. Um, being that our, our message is renews God's promise, gathering renews God's promise, um, we are seeing that visibly here in the sacrament. That is, that he continually renews to us um, his promise. The original word that the Latin translated was uh, the Greek word mysterion, and that has to do with a mystery or a secret that's been revealed to us. And so when we speak of the sacrament, we refer to that unique element of our worship that Christ himself instituted that is a sign, an outward and visible physical sign pointing to a, an, an inward promise. My grandfather passed away a couple years ago. His name, uh, he, he, we called him Granddaddy. And uh, he passed away two and a half years ago. And, and when he did, my family got together and, and we celebrated his life. And we, we had a memorial meal together. We we had lunch and we talked about my grandfather and all of his great accomplishments. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. He was a troop leader of Boy Scouts, teaching young men to do all kinds of manly things like build fires and tie knots and stuff. He was the drummer in a, in a, uh, he was a drummer in the University of North Carolina marching band. He was an invested father. 
uh, often taking the family out skiing. They lived in Coral Gables. They had a boat. They'd go water skiing almost every weekend, my dad tells me. And they'd often invite friends and family along to participate in their fellowship. And he was a deacon in the church. And all of these things that we rem- remember about him, we come together and we talk. And it's, it's as if we've come and have honored him in what we've said. And yet there's, a, there's sort of this, this knowledge that all of us have, this... Um, sense that all of us have a high, high awareness of that there will be no new stories told, there will be no new fellowship made, no new wisdom to gain from his, from his experience in life. We can look back and remember what he's done, but sitting and talking with him, fellowshipping with him uh, is no longer possible. It makes a big difference whether we think someone is dead or alive. And that's the point, is it makes a big difference whether we come here today to celebrate a a dead Jesus, to memorialize him, or if we come here today knowing that he is living and therefore present spiritually with us today. It should change things about how we come to worship, about how we come to this table. Communion is the word of God proclaimed not just to our ears, but to our eyes and to our sense of touch and smell and taste. It is the Word of God visible to you. It's amazing, if you think of it, that God would accommodate himself, uh, accommodate us in such a way. But it also shouldn't surprise us, I guess, that he often accompanies promises with a sign. We think immediately of Noah and the rainbow. Noah uh, was promised that that the world would never be destroyed by a flood again. And what was the sign? It was a rainbow, right? It was a visible sign pointing to the promise of God that it was true, that it was, in fact, um, going to come to be as God had promised. In the Old Testament, the nation Israel had been set apart by God. God had said, I am going to make of you a covenant community. And he gave them a sign of circumcision. The sign pointed to the inward promise of God that I am going to make for myself a covenant people. And in the New Testament, we see that that sign of circumcision is fulfilled in baptism. In Colossians 2 and elsewhere, we read of the shadow of circumcision coming to completion in in the form of baptism in, in the New Testament. And so when we baptize someone here, what we're saying is we're marking them uh, with the sign of God's promise to call himself a covenant community together. And all of these signs, feasts, circumcision, baptism, all of these signs are physical, visible elements pointing to an invisible spiritual action of the Holy Spirit. And the meal we share today is remembrance of what Christ has done, but it's so much more than that. It's It's true that we remember and reflect on what Christ has done and accomplished on the cross, uh, the, the victory that he has secured for us, but it's also true that that story continues today and tomorrow and that it anticipates our fulfillment, our completion in him. And so the fact that we come to this table in that way ought to change things about how we come. And we're going to look at the institution of the supper. We're going to look at the passage in Luke 22 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper uh, as an institution for us uh, to continue today. In Luke 22, verse 14, he says this, When the hour had come, 
That is for Jesus' suffering to begin. It was the night before his crucifixion. It was before he was betrayed and the night before he suffered and unto death. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. I love that verse because I think it shows us something of Jesus' priorities. Of all the things he could have been doing the night before his death, he chose to be with his apostles. And I think by extension, we can say that of all the things that Jesus could be doing, he has chosen to fellowship with us. He has come in the, in the form of Jesus to allow us that. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That word Passover ought to send up all kinds of flags, just reminding us of things that have happened so far in the gospel story. Passover was the, ma- the great meal, the great sign that God established in Moses uh, back in the Exodus when the night before they were released from, from slavery in Egypt, God gave them a sign, and it was this Passover feast. You'll remember that God had sent plagues on Egypt, and before that tenth and final plague, God comes to Moses and says, here's the deal, I'm coming in judgment. I'm promising you that both I will, I will both come in judgment and I will be merciful to those who have this sign. And the sign is this, that you are to take an unblemished lamb and to slaughter it and to feast on it and to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. It's graphic, but it's a sign that would show God when he did come in judgment, he would pass over those houses that had been covered by the blood of the lamb. And in the same way, what we see here is Jesus at the Passover meal, he's celebrating the same feast that he celebrated with them, uh, with Moses The Passover supper is continued, but something is fundamentally different. There is a conspicuous absence of a very key central element in this supper. Where's the lamb? Jesus is about to make a lot of the bread and of the cup, but where's the lamb? That's the central figure in the story of the Passover. It's the sacrificial lamb. Now, let me disclaim that and say, I I, want to also acknowledge that earlier we read that the Passover feast was prepared, and I got to think the most natural reading of that is they included a lamb in that preparation. So what I'm not suggesting is there was no lamb there. What I am suggesting, however, is that Jesus' emphasis is on the bread and the cup, and that is very odd. Where is the lamb? Well, the Lamb of Moses' Supper was a type and shadow of the true Lamb to come, who is now the one seated at the table distributing these elements. As John proclaims him, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb who was slaughtered for you, his body broken, his blood spilt out. And it covers the mantle of your own heart, so that when God does in fact come as he's promised in judgment, He will see those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, and He will pass over. He will have mercy. He will spare. He will deliver. Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed. That's remembrance. He is the better Lamb. He is the better Passover Lamb because in Him we are delivered from a greater bondage than that which was in Egypt. We're delivered from more than physical slavery, but spiritual slavery to sin and death. But Christ is also alive, and he's seated at the table. 
which means we have present communion with him now. But there's one more aspect of this supper. We have remembrance. We have present communion. There's also anticipation of something to come. He goes on to say, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled, that is completed, reached its fullness in the kingdom of God. Well, what on earth is he talking about there? In the kingdom of God, the fulfillment in the kingdom of God? Well, it's in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 7, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself, that is the church, in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Guys, you are the bride. You are the one who he is wooing, who will be, in fact, united with Christ in this marriage supper. And that's something else that we do here when we have this supper. It's a sign of something to come. It's something promised by God that one day we will, in fact, be restored. One day we will, in fact, be seated around the throne. And it goes on, that Revelation 19. You ought to, you ought to read it later. It's awesome. He goes on to describe the lamb, and man, it's incredible. He says he comes on this white horse, and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he has eyes like fire, and a sword out of his tongue. It's just incredible language, an incredible description of the kingly rule of our Jesus. And guess what song we'll be singing when we get there? If you were here last week, it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then what did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They haven't stopped saying it, haven't stopped singing it since last Sunday uh, when we heard this message. Day in, day out, all of heaven is united in praise to him. And we come here to celebrate that, to join in their voices. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here is where he establishes the supper as something to be repeated He says, take this, share this among yourselves, do this again, do this in remembrance of me, continue this. And we see the apostles in the the early church taking this understanding to uh, be part of our regular corporate worship, that we would celebrate this supper that he's instituting here. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the bread and the wine, they represent God's, Christ's body and blood. He is the better Passover lamb. The physical bread and wines are, uh, wine are signs of an invisible reality, namely the promise of forgiveness and of everlasting life. And 
we celebrate not just remembering, but with present fellowship with him and anticipating that feast to come. And so that's communion. But what about baptism? That's also a sacrament in this church. And by sacrament, again, we mean a sacred promise that's been revealed to us, a mystery of Christ that's been shown to us. It's like the supper. Baptism is like the supper in that it is instituted by Christ for our remembrance of his present activity in in this life and an anticipation. It follows this paradigm of remembrance, present communion, and anticipation. And so, as an easy example of that, we read of three different ways that the church is holy in Scripture. He says, on the one hand, the church has been declared holy. That word holy just means set apart. It means consecrated, set apart for another purpose, a higher purpose by God. Holy, you have been declared holy as the church. That is, you're set apart for God's kingdom work. And yet, we also read that we are being made holy, that there is something presently happening in us that God is refining, that God is causing us to be more like him, to be more set apart. And that anticipates the day when finally we will be white as snow, when he has rid sin from our hearts and we will sin no more and enjoy him unhindered and worship him forever. It's, it's like that with baptism in that the remembrance, the we are declared holy is signified by baptism in that, in this way, like God said, I'm going to have a covenant family, a covenant community, and I'm going to give you a mark. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision. In the New Testament, it is baptism. And that mark applied to children and to the, and to the adult. And so when we come to worship we, and we baptize somebody on stage, what you're seeing is God putting a sign on this family, this person who is being baptized as part of this covenant community. Now, let me pause there and, and address a, a, a question that's come up. Why do we include infants? Why do we clu- include children in that baptism? Well, like I said, the circumcision sign in the Old Testament applied to children also, eight days old, before they were really understanding of what was happening, before they had made a profession of faith on their own. And many, we see examples in Scripture of people who were in fact circumcised and who later fell away from faith and, who, and others who came to faith. And so by, by that sign of baptism, we are not conferring salvation on the child. What we're saying is because he has been born to a believing parent, he is by nature of being part of that covenant family receiving this sign that, that he is in fact part of the, uh, of the community. Uh, I'll illustrate it this way. It's, I grew up in a house of FSU fanatics. Is there anybody here who is an FSU fan? Two people. That's about how big a response I got last service to. We're hanging on, okay? We're hanging on. We won a game yesterday, I think the first in a while. I grew up in a house of FSU fans, and so I wore the jersey. I, I was a baby with a FSU pacifier. I did the war chant before I even knew what that meant, the, the chop and all, the whole nine yards. We would gather together as a, church, as a uh, family. And we would celebrate these games, and we'd sit there and we'd cheer on the Seminoles. And, and, 
And while I wore that jersey as a kid, they didn't decide for me that for eternity I would be an FSU um, grad. I ended up going to Florida State, but it was after I had come to a place in my own life where I had to make a decision. Where am I going to go to school? And I think I chose rather wisely. (laughs) We're staying strong, you and me. Um, The illustration is this, that I wore the jersey was a sign that I was part of this FSU family, part of this community. I hadn't the foggiest idea what the tomahawk chop was. I didn't know what we were doing. I was just having fun. I was part of the family. And that the nature of me wearing that jersey was not such that I would then necessarily become an FSU grad, although it didn't hurt. I grew up in this family, and, and that's kind of the point. You see, when we baptize a child here, we're saying you are part, because of the nature of your parents' relationship with Christ, part of this family of believers. It does not mean that they have received Christ in their own will and volition yet. But again, it doesn't hurt. And if God has given us this privilege, then why would we exclude them from it? Why would we delay unnecessarily to show them as part of this community? Okay, so it remembers that God has set apart a covenant people for himself. Secondly, there's present action. That is, there's a washing, a cleansing symbolism in baptism. And that's to remind us that there is a present activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, washing away sin, purifying, cleansing us for his work. And finally, it's an anticipation of the day when we will die and be resurrected with him. It is this image, this symbol of of baptism, of being buried unto death and resurrected uh, unto new life. I didn't say this in the first service because I didn't want to throw out another controversial issue, but did you know that, strictly speaking, the reason that we sprinkle, you know what I mean by that, by cupping water in our hands and putting it on the head of the child, it's purely hygienic. There are a lot of reasons why we might say, gosh, actually, submerging somebody, immersing someone down in the water and bringing them up is a great illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection work of this baptism. That's one thing that it symbolizes, one thing that it represents. But parents get a little upset and a little nervous when we do that with their babies. And that's the reason. If you've been baptized in a way of immersion, we're not saying, oh, you have not been baptized. There's a sprinkling, there's a pouring. That may be revolutionary to some of you um, in the Presbyterian um, circle. But the water is significant because it is a cleansing, a purifying agent, and it also represents this death and resurrection to new life. And so to recap baptism, it's God has set apart for himself a covenant family, and by the sign of baptism, we are showing that promise to be true. Secondly, it is this cleansing work that happens, and it will um, ultimately be fulfilled in heaven as we are buried with him and resurrected unto new life. So it's different in a couple ways also. Uh, For one thing, uh, in what it signifies, the Lord's Supper and baptism, they're different in this way, that the Lord's Supper or communion, it's it's signifying receiving the forgiveness of sins and the everlasting life that is our benefit through Christ. So we 
are told that we ought to wait until we are of a, an age of accountability to come to the table. We ought to be believers before we come and take uh, the Lord's Supper because we don't want to, in a sense, signify something that has not happened in our own souls, in our own lives. Now, baptism is, is different in that it is a set-apart people is what it's signifying, and a, it's, it's therefore done once, and the Lord's Supper is done regularly. So why do we baptize once and come to the table? Well, we're saying that baptism is a sign of you're now part of this community. You've been introduced or inducted into this community, and you don't need to be regrafted in over and over and over again. You're part of the community. Until you make a profession of faith on your own, and then we come to the table to signify that we have longing, we have need, we have hunger and thirst after the things of God, the benefits of Christ bestowed on us by the cross. We have daily need for his forgiveness. We have daily need for his grace. We have nourishment by this bread and by this wine that is spiritual. We come not just with a, with a dry mouth, but with a dry heart. And we come to be nourished by God's Spirit. And that requires us to come again and again and again. Why don't we do altar calls here? Well, I'm sure there are other reasons, but I'd say we do do altar calls here, and this is it. We, we call you. An altar call is, hey, come forward if you want to receive Christ and make a decision. The Lord's Supper, we're calling you to Christ. We're calling you. Take assessment of what's going on in your heart. Is the Lord prodding you? Is the Lord leading you to a relationship with himself? Come to the supper again and again and again because that is the nature of our need for him. In closing, if I could just offer a couple of practical suggestions. There are things that we do in church sometimes that can become so rote because we do them often that we lose some of the significance. And so I hope that part of what you gain from today is the significance of the supper and of baptism and that this is actually something happening here in our midst. But practically speaking, if I can offer a couple of ideas, first of all, if you've never been baptized and you're wondering about it, uh, whether you're an adult who has never been baptized or you have a child in your family who you've just never never done that, you have questions about it, just send an email to the church, info at riovistachurch.com, pick up the phone, call the office. Uh, one of us would be more than happy just to sit down and talk with you about your thoughts on that and um, see about uh, what that might mean for you. And, and secondly, parents, lead your kids. You know, they're studying worship across the street during this gather series. The, the kids are actually engaging in this same conversation in a different way. They're engaging in worship conversation. And so if you have a child there in KidQuest today, make it a point of conversation tonight around the dinner table. Hey, what are you learning? Tell me about worship. What are you, what are you digesting in all of this? And then based on what you've been learning here in church and in your own study of worship, uh, encourage them, teach them, be the leaders of your home and teach those kids how to think rightly about worship. They're going to have so many other voices in this conversation uh, they need yours. And specifically, if I can speak to fathers, I think you have a unique role in your house, and that's to be the leader both of your spouse and of your kids. And 
My dad uh, was a worship pastor, still is a worship pastor, and he used to, uh, during communion Sundays, come off the stage and kneel down in front of me and my sister and my brother with the communion elements in hand, distribute them to us. And he would look at me and he'd say, Ryan, this cup represents the blood of Christ shed for you and forgiveness of sins. This bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. And eat and drink knowing that Christ's forgiveness is sufficient for you. It's your whole provision in life. And as a seven-year-old kid, my dad was beginning to frame the conversation for me. He was beginning to teach me what all this mysterious, seemingly mysterious stuff is. Teach your kids this stuff. It makes an impact. That is, by the way, why we've changed the format of communion. It wasn't just to do something new and different. Uh, we used to pass the trays assembly line style. Now we, we give you time and space to come forward as you're ready to take that 10 minutes and prepare your own heart before the Lord, to go and do business with another person in the room that you have problems with. If there's conflict, if there's disunity, if there's unforgiveness, go to that person. Step up, just go. Just talk to them, deal with it. Make it happen. If not here, where? We give you that space and that time for the fathers of the family to lead their family in in prayer and in the Lord's Supper and and to reflect on what's happening here. And so that's why we, we do that format. And so please just don't feel rushed. Take the time. We've got, we've got a good bit of time. So let's pray together and, and ask the Lord's blessing before Tom comes up. He's going to introduce the, the table. And uh, let's pray for God's grace this morning. Father, we do give you thanks that you are a God who has accommodated our weakness. Lord, that you have revealed yourself in Christ and even given us these signs, Lord, that they might be a reminder to us of your present activity in our lives. We pray, Lord, that when we come to worship, that you would give us a, just a willing spirit, Lord, to not just hear about you, but to learn from you. Lord, that you would give us a, a sense and an awareness of your present activity in us. Lord, also, as we come to the supper, we do pray that you would give us a vision of the final feast. Lord, the being reunited with you and with our family in Christ in heaven. Lord, give us that vision. Allow us, Lord, as we take communion this morning to do more than just memorialize you, but Lord, to sit at the table with Christ and to have his promise of fellowship with us renewed. Lord, we give you all the thanks, all the praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.